Well, um, if you watch the local news here in Houston, there's a segment on a particular broadcast called Spencer Solves It. And it's put on by a local news reporter by the name of Bill Spencer. And Spencer Solves It uh, during most of the year is if you have something that's gone awry, something that's gone wrong, you can email him and kind of let him know what happened. So if you've got a contractor that said, hey, I'm going to remodel your kitchen, I need a $10,000 deposit, and they never remodel your kitchen and they run off their money, you just send it to him and he will investigate and then he'll go interview them and try to get your money back or get the work done. And that's Spencer Solves It by Bill Spencer. But during the holidays, the last, I think, week and a half, two weeks now, Spencer Solves It has all been about families that have been in need during the holidays. They've got kids and they need food and presents and all that. And so he'll go and solve that problem. So he'll give them gift cards from Academy and from HEB and from other places to help solve that problem. And so the segment, if you've seen it before, is called Spencer Solves It. Again, whether it's with a business or a restaurant or something that you've had some issues with, or if you have a need, you can contact him, you can nominate families, and Spencer will solve it. But as I watched that the other day in this very heartwarming story, and especially good because most of the news out of Houston has lately been about rising COVID cases and homicides and all those things, it's very heartwarming to see families that are in need that are helped by Bill Spencer. But here's the issue. For the dozens of families that they've helped over the last two weeks or so, there are still hundreds of families that have a need. And if you look at the totality of the United States or even the world, there's millions, even billions of people that have a need that Spencer just can't solve. And there's certain problems that Spencer can't solve as well. Like if you're going through some marital issues and you're struggling in marriage, you can email him and say, hey, can you come solve that problem? And he'll say, you need to go to a counselor because there are certain problems that he can't solve. If you've got a financial crisis or you've got some decisions to make, there's problems like that that he can't solve as well. And on top of that, our greatest problem as people of being reconciled to holy God, a God who loves us and yet we're separated from him because of our sin, obviously Spencer cannot solve that as well. And the myriad of problems that we've had and the difficult challenges in 2020, many of those issues Spencer can't solve either. But today we're going to look at from Isaiah chapter 9, the one who can solve these problems both now but also into eternity. So if you have your Bibles, look at Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5 on Christmas Eve at 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. Because traditionally, people preach from Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 during the Christmas or the Advent season. But I want to touch on verses 3 through 5 today and verses 1 and 2 on Christmas Eve to give you the context. Why is Christmas so special? Why do we celebrate the birth of Christ? And it has to do because Jesus came to solve problems. And he came based on a promise. So the message is entitled, The Promises of the Promised Messiah. Look at verse 3, Isaiah 9.3. Isaiah 9.3. He says this, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. Verse 5, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. So let me give the context, historical context of Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. So again, we often hear sermons on Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. But let me give you the context of where Isaiah is entering into. So if you think 2020 has been a rough year, a difficult year, a dark year, imagine yourself 
being in northern Israel in the year 732 BC, 732 BC, because you are in, let's say, Galilee, and you hear the rolling of horses' hooves and chariots coming to your city, and the Assyrians are, under, are coming to attack. So the Assyrians were a mighty kingdom. They trained their men for war. The men, for a year, would uh, do construction projects and do military training, and they do construction projects and build up their muscle and their strength. They do military training. And then for one year, they were drafted in the Assyrian army, and they'd go through all the parts of the world to help expand the Assyrian army. They were ruthless. They were violent. And then after you served for a year, then you were allowed to go back home. And if you were married, to spend time with your wife. If you weren't, you began to look for a wife. And so every male in the Assyrian kingdom was required to do a year training and then one year of fighting. Now here's how... They would come. They would come with chariots and stuff. They would lay siege to your city. So imagine we're in Galilee, and they've surrounded our city. They've surrounded the city of Houston. And because of that, no food or other things are coming into the city. So for days, perhaps even weeks, you have not eaten at all. So if you think going to HEB or Kroger's and seeing a shortage of toilet paper and canned foods is bad, imagine having all your food wiped out because the city is under siege. And as you're there looking out your window of your home, you see these Assyrian armies surrounding your city. And on poles, they have the heads, the human heads of other people they've conquered. They're also impaling. They would take, imagine a giant skewer. They would impale their enemies as well and string them up. And so you would look out your window and be surrounded by a scene of impaled people and heads to cause fear in you. And on top of that, this is what they also knew. They also knew the way to conquer a nation is to divide it. So they would conquer a nation, they conquer Galilee, and they would take the women and children and sell them into slavery and to be concubines all around the Assyrian kingdom. They would take the men and enslave them as well and make them do construction projects. They would, knowing that the youth, the teenagers, the next generation, if there were ever anyone to overthrow or an uprising or a coup, it'd be the teenagers who would have the courage and the energy to try to overthrow the Assyrians, what they would do is they would burn teenagers alive. So can you picture uh, you at your house for Christmas dinner and the Assyrian army comes, they take away your teenage boys and girls, corral them into the city center, pour something flammable on them and burn them alive. So if you think 2020 has been dark and difficult, the year 732 BC and Galilee was a difficult year. Lack of food, violence all around you, your family being separated, sold into slavery and being concubines, teenagers being killed. They'd also be known for skinning people alive and gouging out their eyes as well. And I paint this very morbid and dark picture to give you the context in which Isaiah is making this prophecy. You're all with me? So here are the three promises, and they really hinge on the last promises, the promise and these are the promises of the promised Messiah. Verse 3, Isaiah 9, 3. He says this. You shall multiply the nation. And the you is talking about Yahweh, Jehovah God. God shall multiply the nation. God shall increase their gladness. God, uh, and they will be glad in your presence, God's presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulder. So here's the thing, that word uh, in verse three, you shall multiply. In the second part, you shall increase. 
in the middle there, they will be glad. And then verse four, you shall break. And even in verse five, uh, will be for burning for fire. Whenever you hear this phrase, will or shall, basic English here, is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? When you hear will and shall. Future. Because it has not happened yet. And so you say, this shall happen, this will happen. And these are the promises of God. Now here's the thing. In the Hebrew grammar, you would think if God is saying this will happen, this shall happen, they will be burned, they will do this, they will be delivered, you would think in the Hebrew it would also be in what? The future tense. Hasn't happened yet. But here's the significance. In all these cases of will and shall in verses 3, 4, and 5, it's in the past tense. It's in the perfect tense in the Hebrew. You're saying, big deal, what does that mean? God is so confident that the promises he's making to God's people, both in that time, 732 BC, and even today, are going to come to pass, he speaks of them in the past tense. Okay, y'all stare at me kind of strange. Let me try to help you then, all right? Um, when I was pastor of a church here in Houston, we had a staff member, his name is Don, but I call him Dunn, D-O-N-E, Dunn. And the reason why I call him Dunn is because I would say to Don, I say, Don, after the 11 o'clock gathering, would you come and put the candles out, the Advent candles out, blow them out? And then he would say, Dunn. And I'd shake my head. I said, uh, Don, you're not listening to me. I said, after the worship gathering is over at around 1230, would you come blow out the candles and put them up? That hasn't happened yet, right? In an hour and a half. And he would say, Done. And I'm like, man, you're not getting it. And then I'd say, hey, and also because of COVID, can you wipe down the chairs and do the, the wipes and all that? And he would say, done. And I'd say, no, no, no. After all the worship gathering, so like 6.30 tonight, we're about to go home, can you do that? He'd say, done. The reason why Don would use the uh, past tense, done, is because he says, you can guarantee that it will get done. You can be assured that the promise I make will be kept, that I can speak of it, in the past tense. Are y'all with me? And that's what God does here. God says, I know what you're going through. You're seeing your families being scattered. You're going without food. You're seeing violence around you. The Syrians probably even came into your house, and the, most of those days, they would bury the family fortune in the center of the home. They would dig up your family fortune, dig out your wall. So imagine everything that you work for, save for, your money, your 401k, will be taken from you. He says, I know all that's happened to you, but you can be rest assured that I will keep my promises, that I speak of it in the past tense. So here's the first promise. God's people will grow in number. He says in verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. God's people will grow in number. Again, northern kingdom, scattered, taken away. They're being depleted, and yet God says, I'm going to multiply them. And he says it in the past tense. I'm so sure this is going to happen that I can speak of it in the past tense. So God's people will grow in number both in quantity, but also quality as well. Um, here's another passage in Luke 1, Luke 1, 46 through 55, Mary's Magnificat. Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she's praising the Lord, she too talks about what God is going to do in the future. And she is so certain that God is going to do it. You know what she does? She speaks in the past tense, she uses what's known as the Greek aorist. She says, I'm going to talk about what God is going to do in the future. And I'm so confident God is going to do it. 
I'm going to talk in the past tense. I'm going to say it's already done. So he says here, God is going to multiply the nation. Does anybody remember here when Abraham offered Isaac up? After he passed the test, as he demonstrated his trust and faith in the Lord, does anyone remember what God said to Abraham? God said to Abraham, he says, you go to the beach, you go down to Galveston, you go to Florida, you go to California, you go to the Bahamas. And he says, you look at all the grains of sand across the world. And he says, I will multiply your descendants, your offspring, like the sand of all the beaches around the world. And that's what happens. We sing that song. Remember growing up in Sunday school, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. And you're saying, well, how did that get fulfilled? How did this multiplier nation get fulfilled? Revelation 7, verse 9. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. We see this picture of heaven. All tribes, nations, and tongues worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. God the Father and God the Son. And John the Revelator, St. John, says, I looked at the sea of people and there were so many people there, I could not count them. And so God's promise is fulfilled. So here's the three things that happen in all these promises. There's a past way, a present way, and a future way. In the past, ultimately, God did deliver Israel from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all their enemies. So in the past, that happened. In the present, God has continued to deliver them. And one day in the future, there's going to be a kingdom which Jesus Christ comes and will experience deliverance or freedom there as well. So God's people will grow in number. The second thing that's going to happen, he says in verse three in the middle, you shall increase their gladness. Again, it's past tense. Their gladness will be increased. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So promise number two, God's people will grow in their joy. God's people will grow in their joy. They'll grow in number, but they'll also grow in joy. The word there is samak in the Hebrew. We get the English word smack from it. Just kidding. We don't get that from it. Um, it can mean either joy or gladness. So some translations say gladness. Some say joy. And this is the thing about it. Because God promises a better tomorrow that helps us get through our bad todays. God's promise of a better tomorrow help us, helps us get through, gets us the ability to get through our bad todays. And they're going to grow in joy. So you can grow in your joy today, even if 2020 has been a rough year, a difficult year, because God has promised a better tomorrow, both in what's called the kingdom, but also in eternity as well. God has promised a better tomorrow. And so because of that, he says in verse three there at the end, he says, it's like a farmer who's been working and waiting. Then he has a harvest. He says he's glad at the harvest. Or like the soldier who fights and he wins a war. Now he gets to divide some of the spoils. He says, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, all the things that you are waiting on in the future have now come to pass and will come to pass. So even though it has not happened yet, you can rejoice right now. Y'all aren't getting it. All right. So yesterday, uh, my daughter and I went on a father-daughter date. So uh, in San Antonio, where she goes to college, she said there's only one ramen shop. It's not very good, and they charge way too much. It's $20 a bowl. So she said, Dad, take me to a place in Houston that charges $10 a bowl, half the price, and that's twice as good. And so we went on a father-daughter date. And how many of y'all know the weather, what it was like yesterday around 1130? You remember the weather at 1130 yesterday? Dark, rainy, raining cats and dogs. 
And here's the thing. I made a promise to my daughter, so I said, I'm going to keep the promise, even though it's dangerous. And so we got on the road and went to our favorite little ramen shop. And here's the thing. I'm driving. My windshield wipers are going like 90 miles an hour. It's raining cats and dogs. It's dark. There's thunder and lightning. There's flooding around localized areas. And I'm sitting there going, I wonder if I really should have done this. I feel discouraged. I feel like, man, am I going to make it? But this is what kept me going. The future. Because I knew I'd be sitting in a ramen shop, eating a nice warm bowl, hot bowl of delicious spicy pollo chicken ramen. And I could already taste it and I could feel the broth going inside and warming me from the inside. So even though it was cold on the outside, even though it was stormy on the outside, what kept me going was that future warmth on the inside. And that's what he says here. God's people will grow in their joy. They'll grow in their joy or their gladness. Paul says it this way. Philippians is called the epistle of joy, uh, the letter of joy. Philippians 1, 18 through 19. Paul says, you know what? Even though I've been in prison for four years, I've been jailed for four years. He says, I rejoice because I have liberty. I have freedom because God has set me free. Not physically, I'm still in prison, but I've been now set free from the bondage of sin. He says, I can rejoice. And that's why throughout Philippians, he's like, rejoice, joy, rejoice, joy. Not because of his circumstances, but because of his trust in a faithful God. So God's people will grow in their joy. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. He says in verse uh, four, for you shall break. You shall break. Again, future, but it's in the past tense. You've already broken the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. So again, he speaks in the future. And here's the third promise, because God's people will be set free. God's people will be set free. He says, you shall break their yoke, the thing that's burdening them. Many of them have been enslaved. They become concubines and servants. He says the rod of their oppressor, the oppression they face, they'll be set free from just like at the battle of Midian. If you know the Bible, Judges chapter six and seven, Gideon and his tiny little army, they had 32,000 men. God said, hey, whittle it down. So he says, hey, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000 men left that day. They were down to 10,000. They whittle that down even to 300 courageous men who didn't have to lift a finger. They just simply blew a trumpet trumpet, and the Midianites in confusion and fear ran off. He says, just like that, God is going to deliver you. Look back at your history. Look back at God's faithfulness and you can say, this is what I trust God is gonna do in the future. God's people will be set free. And that's what God has done for us. We may not be physically oppressed, physically colonized, physically taken over, physically imprisoned, but Romans chapter six, which is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, says that you and I have been set free from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? Separation from God. And if you die in that separation from God, it's an eternity separated from him. That's the penalty of sin, Romans six. But also the power of sin, that before you trusted Jesus Christ, you were a slave to sin. You were in bondage to sin. And he says, Jesus Christ has even set you free from that as well. And he says, because of that, you can, the God's people will grow in their number, promise number one, and God's people will grow in their joy because God has set us free. So there's a past fulfillment. God set uh, 
Israel free from the captivity and bondage. God has set us free from sin. And one day in eternity, God will set us free from all sin and death. Uh, look at this picture here in verse five. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will, burn, will be for burning fuel for the fire. The Hebrew word there, fire, is seraph, from which we get the English word seraphim, or burning ones. And then whenever you read seraphim in the Bible, that, those are the burning ones. They're glowing and burning. He says, the cloak that the soldier wore and the boots that the soldier wore in battle he says, now will no longer be needed for battle. Instead, they'll be used as fuel for the fire. So on a cold day like today, you would throw those things in your fireplace to warm you up, to cook your food. What was once a symbol of violence and oppression, now God is going to take to something useful and beneficial. Write these verses down. Micah 4.3. Micah 4.3. Micah 4.3. Joel 3.10. And Isaiah 2.4, Micah 4.3, Joel 3.10, I'm sorry, not 2.10, 3.10, Joel 3.10, and Isaiah 2.4, Micah 4.3, Joel 3.10, Isaiah 2.4, all say the exact same thing, that one day Jesus Christ is going to come and reign for a thousand years. Let me give you the, the timeline of what's called the eschatological timeline, that there's going to be something known as a rapture. God is going to take up his children, his uh, believers are going to be taken up into eternity, into, into uh, heaven. And this is what's going to happen. For seven years, we are going to be judged, I believe. This is the Corinthians judgment, 1 Corinthians 3. We will stand before God and give an account for our lives from the moment we put our faith in Christ, what we do with our time, our money, and our choices. And then while that's going on in heavenly realms, while we're being judged, not for eternity, heaven or hell, but judged in terms of how we lived our lives, what we did with our money, how we did in our relationships, how we were as a parent, how we were as a pastor, how we were as an elder. He says on earth, there's going to be seven years of tribulation, seven years of tribulation. In the very midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to get up in the temple of Jerusalem that's going to be rebuilt, and he's going to declare himself to be God. That's what's going to happen. At the end of seven years of tribulation, then we'll know, then we'll have Satan and his demons put in hell in the fiery furnace, like it's a pit for a thousand years. And for a thousand years, Jesus Christ is going to then come back. He'll return to earth physically, visibly, along with faithful believers. Those who've been judged for those seven years of tribulation up in heaven, those who've been faithful will come back and rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And every single Old Testament promise to Israel that has not been fulfilled will be fulfilled during that thousand year reign. Every promise that's been partially fulfilled in the Old Testament will be fulfilled during that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus will reign from Jerusalem, and there'll be no more wars. The peace that we've all been desiring will now be found during that reign of Jesus Christ. And my hope is this. My hope in this room right here, there will be some faithful believers who will come back and rule with them. We don't know exactly the structures, but perhaps there'll be governors and local governors and city council type people that you'll come back and rule along with Jesus Christ because of your faithfulness while you were living on earth. But he says, during that thousand year reign, Micah 4.3, Joel 3.10, Isaiah 2.4, says that they will turn swords into plowshares. What are plowshares? That's what you use to dig up the ground, to soften the ground. They'll turn, let's use modern day things. They'll turn artillery and tanks 
guns and weapons, melt that down and form plowshares, things to soften the ground. He says spears, let's even use rifles. We melt it down to make um, uh, plowshares that we'll use to harvest food, harvest wheat, harvest rice, harvest grain, harvest food. He says, so what was once used for killing is now going to be used to sustain life. And he says, we will learn war no more. We'll study war no more, which means there will be no longer plotting and playing amongst parties and nations and military institutions and all that. He says, because when Jesus Christ comes, there will be peace because he's the prince of peace. Again, many people have studied uh, Isaiah 9, 6, because the prince of peace has come to reign. So we will be set free during that time. So in the past, Israel was set free from both Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. And now we are set free in the present from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, Romans 6. But in the future, one day we will all be set free. So that's God's third promise. And again, God says it in the past tense, not the future tense, which it should say, but he's so sure it's going to happen, past tense. Just like Jesus Christ came the first time, we celebrate Advent. And we can trust that Christ is coming back again because God fulfilled that promise on round number one. Um, Look at Psalm 46, a verse that we often quote. Psalm 46. Psalm 46, nine. Then we'll look at verse 10. Psalm 46, 9 says this. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, a bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Verse 10, the verse that we quote. Be still or cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So again, we quote Psalm 46, 10, the A part. Be still know that I'm God. But the context of it is, is one day wars will cease. One day there'll be peace throughout the world because the Prince of Peace is ruling and reigning. And you can tap into that now by trusting this God who says, hey, I want to be your stronghold. I want to be your security. So write this down again. The promise, God's promise of a better tomorrow can get us through our bad todays. Let me give you three application notes and then I'll sit down. First is this, is to know the promises of God, to know the promises of God. The reason why we study the word of God and know the word of God and hear it and listen to podcasts is so that we can know what God's word says regarding his promises. And what you will find in God's word is this, make sure the promises are made, number one, either to all of God's people, to Israel and the church, or is it to Israel only, or is it to the church only? So make sure that the context is correct. Second is this, Ask yourself, is this a conditional promise of God or unconditional promise of God? So again, context and conditional. Is the context for the church or all of God's people, both the church and Israel? And secondly, is this a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? And what you'll find in the Bible is there are some unconditional promises where God says, just for my name's sake, I'm going to do it because I'm God. But he will also say in other parts, there's a condition that if you do this, to demonstrate your faith or trust in me, then after I see you doing that, after I see you obeying me, then I'll fulfill my part. I'll do my deal. 
right? He says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And he says, what happens after that? And if you do those things, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. So for many of us going through anxiety with the economy or what's going on in our world today, and we're feeling anxious, and you say, God, give me peace. You promised peace. Your peace would guard my heart and mind. I want that peace now. God says, look at the A section. There's a condition to it. Pray, make a request known to God with thanksgiving. Look back at your track record with God and say, God, these are the ways that you've been faithful to me even when I was anxious. And what you will find is that then God's peace will guard your heart and mind. That word guard is like a sentry, like, a, like a, the Fort Knox, like the guards around Fort Knox. God's peace, peace will guard your hearts and minds. So the first thing is this, know the promise of God. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him, belief shall not perish, but have, but will have everlasting life. So he says, the condition is you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Outcome is you're not gonna perish and you will have everlasting or eternal life. So know the promises of God, the context and the conditions. Number two, if you're not a Christian today and you're not sure, you're not sure you're a Christian, put your faith in Christ today. The promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, with all his promises has come. Third application is this, is that if you and I are kingdom kids, kingdom citizens, children of God, we should reflect our father. And if our father is a promise-keeping God, then what should we be? Promise keepers. Promise keepers. We should be like my old uh, uh, staff member, Don, where when someone asks us to do something, hey, can you come and help me move? Hey, you know what? We are so sure that we're going to keep that promise that we can talk of it in the past tense. Done. Already. Right? And you're like, done already? Like, that's all past tense, right? That you can say, you know what? You can bank on it. I'm going to fulfill my promises because I'm a child of God. Now, here's the thing. Is there anyone in here who has ever, like Joel Davis, fulfilled 100% of your promises? You've never flaked on a promise. Anybody in here like Joel ever, never flaked on a promise? None of us are that way, and Joel hasn't either. Um, all of us break promises. And so because we walk in light of God as his children, if we break a promise, if we do not follow through on a promise, we should be the first one to say, hey, I confess it to you. Forgive me. I said I was going to show up to help you move. I didn't show up. I said I was going to come at 10 o'clock to do this. Didn't show up. I told you I was going to take you out to eat. If you did this, sorry, I didn't do it. I flaked on you. Forgive me. So we should be the ones to ask forgiveness. The last thing is this is, again, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, with all the promises tied to him, came because God loves us. And that's what we celebrate on this last Sunday of Advent. Reminder, we have Christmas Eve service uh, this Christmas Eve at 2 and 4 on Thursday. Welcome to that. Jesus Christ came because God loved us. God is a promise-keeping God because he loves us. He loves us. He's our father and we're his children. So my challenge to you all as I close, is this. In the midst of the busyness of the season, trying to get all these projects done at work, trying to get all the right gifts, Christmas parties, and sending that last email out, in the midst of the busyness of this season, my daughter and I, not this Saturday, yesterday, but last Saturday, we were at 
Memorial City Mall. We were trying to get some stuff there. We could not find a parking space. We were driving around the parking lot for like 45 minutes or 30 minutes. Finally, my daughter said, Dad, let's just go somewhere else. It was that bad. So in the midst of rushing, trying to find the right gifts, in the midst of Christmas parties, Christmas dinners, don't miss Christ. Don't miss Christ. And that's so easy to do. That in the hustle and bustle of life and work and school and finals that we miss Jesus Christ. Uh, a good friend of mine, hopefully next year he'll preach here uh, by the name of David Hill. He pastors a church called Restoration Community Church in South Union, Third Ward. And Dave and I, we work out together uh, once a week um, and do some accountability stuff, ask about marriage and family and ministry and those kinds of things. Uh, when he preaches here, if you give him 100 bucks, I'm sure he'll give you some dirt on me. He's got tons of dirt on me. Um, but whenever we work out, David is almost always playing his favorite rapper, a Christian rapper by the name of Bizzle. And so, you know, we're lifting, working out to Bizzle. So back in June, Restoration Community Church had a vigil, a memorial for George Floyd and for the 27 others who died in their community due to gun violence. And so the reason why is because David Hill used to coach at the YMCA there in the third ward at the Texans YMCA. And when he coached there, one of his players was George Floyd's younger brother. So he knew George Floyd as well. He actually used to play pickup games with him, pickup basketball. His wife, David's wife, Melissa Hill, actually went to Yates High School and was a classmate of George Floyd. So they said, hey, let's, let's have a memorial. Let's have something in our community because there's people in our community that knew George Floyd to remember him. And so they put on social media, invited people. They asked me to do the opening prayer. David preached a message and we did something to honor uh, George Floyd and uh, some of his family members were there as well. It was a very, very special time. And I was there uh, chopping it up with Dr. Bruce Fong from Dallas Seminary and, and um, my friend Stan Newton, who comes to the first service here. We're talking, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy. And even though he had a mask on, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's Bizzle. So Bizzle was in the building, and it was an outdoor gathering. There's several hundred people there. Bizzle was there as his wife, and his, it was an entourage or posse, but a group of other guys with him, you know. I'm like, that's Bizzle. So I'm like, hey, excuse me, Bruce, Dr. Fong, excuse me, Stan. And I went over there. I'm like, hey, Bizzle, good to see you. And I'm like, man, I'm so glad you're here. How'd you get here? And he's like, oh, a friend of mine invited me. He saw it on social media, and I promised I'd be there. So I showed up. So I want to support the community. I'm, I'm like, great. And he's like, meet my wife. And um, two years ago, the NBA actually flew all the NBA chaplains to Charlotte. And at this special concert put on by some of the chaplains, Bizzle was the artist there. So I, told, I said to him, hey, I met you like two years ago at the All-Star Game. Good to see you again. Thank you for coming out. And he's like, hey, no problem, no problem. So he's just hung, hanging out with all the people, participating, shaking hands, taking Instagram photos and selfies and all that with people. And then I'm like, man, this is amazing. Three days later, I'm working out with David Hill. I'm lifting weights with him. And I'm like, bro, did you see Bizzle at the, at the memorial? And he's like, Oh, man, I heard he was there. And I'm like, you didn't see Bizzle, the one that you love and adore? I said, he was there in the flesh. Bro, you missed it. He goes, man, I got so caught up and I was so busy that I missed Bizzle. And I'm like, the one that you love and adore was there. You were so busy going around, you missed Bizzle. And as I was sharing that with him, I realized that that's what a lot of Christians do that we get so busy sometimes in ministry, sometimes in Christmas parties trying to get work done, get the absolute perfect gift for that loved one, 
even though six months later they're going to even forget that you bought them that gift? We're so busy doing that, talking about Christmas, that we miss Jesus Christ, the one that we love and adore. So if Jesus Christ, and I love John 1, 14 in the message translation, the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Jesus Christ is in our neighborhood. The promised Messiah has come. And my prayer is this, that you wouldn't miss him. Let's pray. God, um, 2020 has been a very difficult and challenging year. And yet, because you are God, you're sovereign and in control. Ahaz, that wicked king of the north, sold this people in idolatry with false promises. God, there is no king, no leader like King Jesus who can make a promise and have it come to fulfillment so much so that he can make a promise in the past tense as if it's already happened. God, you bank on yourself. You bet on yourself. So God, I pray that you would help us to trust you Trust you for better tomorrows. That our trust in your promise of better tomorrows, both in the kingdom and the eternal kingdom, God would get us through our bad todays. God, it's not a vaccine that we hope in. It's not in a change of power that we hope in. Not even a possible promotion next year that we hope in. God, it's not even for our particular sports team that we hope in. But God, ultimately, our hope is in you, the promise keeper, the way maker. So God, would you help us to demonstrate that we hear your promises, that we read your promises, that we know your promises, and where it is contingent on our obedience, where it hinges and weighs on our obedience, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, I pray, by the unction and ability of the Holy Spirit, for us to not only hear the word and hear the promise, but to do it as well. God, if we're anxious today, if we're nervous today, if we're worried today, that we would pray to you and make our requests, our supplications known to you with thanksgiving, that we would go back and look at your faithful track record how you provided when we didn't know how we are going to make ends meet. God, when we were sick and in our sick bed and you healed us. God, when we had that wayward child and you restored him. God, when we had a need for salvation and forgiveness of sin and out of your goodness and grace and your love for us, you met that need in your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray again, that in the midst of the business of the season, God, we know, God, we know that there are gifts that we buy this week that a year from now, as we get ready for Christmas 2021, our kids, our parents, our loved ones are gonna either end up in the trash or completely forget about. So help us not in this season to miss the ultimate gift, Jesus Christ. God, I do pray for anyone here today who's yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they place their faith simply in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And God, help us as your children, if we put our faith in Christ, 
to be faithful in following through with our promises. God, all of us in here should be like Don to say, if you ask me to do it, if I've committed to do it, done. To the kids in this room, to the children, the teenagers in the room, when their parents say, hey, will you clean your room? They can say, done. Amen? When parents make commitments to their kids, when employees make commitments to their boss, when community group members make commitments to one another, they can say, done. Bank on it. Find me faithful as a promise keeper. Would you find us faithful, God, as promise keepers? Because you sent the promised Messiah with all the promises, a promise that your people will grow and multiply, a promise for increased joy, and a promise for deliverance from both what physically binds us, but spiritually binds us and traps us as well. And we're grateful for Jesus. And it says his name we pray and all God's people said.